grew up in the country on a small farm. And one thing about growing up on a farm is you can't just haphazardly grow up on a farm. Like, you got to be all in or all out. I mean, you got to be all about it. All right? Because you're not all about it. You're not getting up in the morning, in the winter, in the snow to go out and feed the animals, to go make sure the, the moms are having their, their little calves and their little kids. And you're, not, you're just not going to do it. You know, when, when you're tired, you're not going to go out and you're not going to take care. When a tree falls down on a fence, you're not going to go cut it up and you're not going to repair the fence. When it comes to living in the country and living on a farm, you've got to be all in or all out. Of course, there are people, and you probably, if you ever watch Animal Planet, you ever watch Animal Cops like I did growing up, you find a lot of people uh, who aren't all in when it comes to owning a farm. They get the police called on them, they come out there, they repossess all the animals, and they take them to somewhere where the people will be all about it. So it's important for us as Christians to understand that when it comes to our faith, when it comes to being Christians, you're either all in or all out. When it comes to the work that we have to do as Christians, we got to be all about it. And that's when, what Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And you can flip there. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's asking, you, you need to be all about accomplishing the job of gospel advancement. We need to be all about it as Christians to be abounding in the work of gospel advancement. And why? Because the gospel explains to the world how Christ got the job done when it comes to taking away our sin. So when we respond to that, when we're all about being Christians, then we need to be all about sharing in the work of gospel advancement because that's what Christ came to do. He came to do the hard work that we could not do. When it comes to how good we were before Christ came, we we all should have had animal cops caught on us. We should all have been repossessed because we were never going to make it because we weren't all in. It took the work of Christ to get us all in that he took away our sins so we could be about working the works that Christ has given us. So every Christian ought to point people to Jesus and encourage everyone to join the work of gospel advancement. Isn't that the the great commission that we have, the great co-mission? We're all on a mission together, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all, some? No, all, all. We've got to be all in teaching him all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. You see, that's our mission. It's your mission. It's my mission. But the great thing is it's the co-mission, that we get to be co-laborers and co-workers in the work of the gospel. In Colossians, Paul introduces a man of the name of Epaphras and explains him, as we will get to, as a co-worker in the advancement of the gospel. And this morning, our challenge is to take up the mantle of being co-laborers and co-workers and begin being all in about gospel advancement here in South Orange County, throughout America, and the world for the glory of God. This is a great commission. Jesus says it another way in Luke 12, 43. We're going to talk about being all in. There's a blessing for those who are all in. Luke 12, 43 says, Blessed is a servant whom his master will find doing his job when he comes back. That's what we desire. That's what we want as Christians, to be abounding in the work of the Lord. So when we stand before God, we stand as a worker approved. Not a worker ashamed. But we stand there and we will be blessed because when Christ comes back, he will find us doing our job. And as Christians, that's our call and our commitment is to always be found, whether it's at home, at school, at work, at the park, they're always found 
doing our job. You see, you have a job to do. Here at Compass, we call it a mission of reaching, teaching, and training. We want to reach people. We want to reach them for Christ. We want to teach them to be like Christ. We want to train them to serve Christ. That's our job. It's very clear here what we want to do when it comes to gospel advancement. We want to reach, we want to teach, and we want to train. We all have that job. We have to do that job together, which is why Paul, partly when he writes this letter, he spends a lot of time in his letter thanking God for the church in Colossae. Just like you and me, we ought to be thanking God when we see other people in the church and other Christians abounding in the work of the Lord. It's quite the theme here in Colossians that Paul actually uses the word thankful seven times to point out the gratefulness that he had for the church in Colossae that they were always getting the job done. He looked at the church in Colossae and he says, you guys were all in. You're all in for the work of the gospel, and I thank God when I pray for you. We ought to be a church that's all in for the gospel all the time. Go ahead and follow along with me in Colossians 1, starting in verse 3. Colossians 1, starting in 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit." There are three concentric circles I want you to keep in mind as we go along this sermon. And the first one you're going to find in verses 7 and 8, and you can just label it your, the personal circle. This is our personal commitment. Is In verse 7 and 8, we are introduced to the beloved fellow servant and the co-worker of Paul, a man of the name of Epaphras. And there are three descriptions of Epaphras that every Christian needs to abide by, needs to live by, if we're going to be fruitful laborers when it comes to the work of God of sharing the gospel. See, Paul never shies away from, from pointing out people and faithful Christians in the church who are doing a good job. Oftentimes, he says, you need to look at these people and imitate their way of life. In Philippians, he does it. He talks about Epaphroditus. He talks about Timothy. He says, oh, our number one person we ought to imitate is Jesus, of course. And here, he already starts out with saying, look at Epaphras. Look at the life he lives. Look at the fruit that was produced in his life because of his faithfulness. So we'd be remiss if we didn't spend time looking at Epaphras and trying to figure out how we can imitate him in our own life, in our church. Description number one, it says in verse seven, that Epaphras was a, a beloved fellow servant. Paul wasn't much on uh, just word service. He wasn't just trying to say things to fill some gaps in time till he get to the end of the letter. When he said things, he meant things. And so when he calls Epaphras a beloved fellow servant, he meant this, that Epaphras was a man who was loved by the apostles and a man that was loved by the church in Colossae. As, we, as you read further, you actually realize that Epaphras didn't just plant the church in Colossae. He planted a church in Laodicea and Heropolis. He had gospel work going on all throughout the Lycus Valley. And everywhere he went, everywhere he was known, he was known as loved. He was loved and he did love and he served. It's important for you and I, if we're going to be fruitful, if we're going to be people committed to being all in in the work of the gospel, 
we need to understand that we need to be loved servants. We need people who serve so much and are so apparent in the way that we serve and so public in the way that we serve that people will look and say, that is a beloved servant. I love them. They serve all the time. They're always committed and abounding in the work of the Lord, and I always see them loving people and serving people. And so next time someone writes a letter and they mention you, they'll say, this is my beloved fellow servant in the work of the Lord. Secondly, he's known not only as a co-worker of Paul, but a hard worker. Something we can all be convicted of, isn't it? Not working hard enough in our homes, in our marriages, raising our children, in our own personal lives. But for us to be known as hard workers like Epaphras, in chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, For I, this is Paul, for I bear witness that he has worked hard for you. And not only for you, but for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. The reality of the fruitfulness of Epaphras was that he was a hard worker. He wasn't lazy. He was a man that was out abounding in the work of the Lord because he was all in. Third and finally, we find that he is a faithful minister of Christ. It says it there in verse 7. That he's, he's faithful, that he's committed, that he's accountable, that you know he's going to be there. You know he's going to be doing what he said he was going to do. And he's faithful, and he's always serving Christ. See, let it be known of you and I and anyone who calls themselves a Christian, anyone who claims to be all in, let it be said to, about us that we are faithful ministers of Christ, that we are, are the faithful people who serve Christ always, always abounding in the work of the Lord, not being lazy, not putting off today what you can do tomorrow, but always, every day, abounding in the work of the Lord, being faithful ministers of Christ. And the question is, why? Well, Paul lifts up Epaphras as an example because he says, you need to see that the fruit of Epaphras' personal obedience has bore a lot of fruit. He says, Epaphras has planted the church here. It's because of him that you guys are Christians. He shared the gospel with all of you. And he says, and not just you, everybody in the Lycus Valley, everybody in South Orange County knows the gospel because Epaphras took serious his job of gospel advancement. See, people were saved, churches were planted, and God was glorified. All because Epaphras took serious and embraced his personal evangelistic responsibility. And that's point number one on your outline, is you need to embrace your personal evangelistic responsibility. You need to embrace it. If you're new here and you don't really know what the word evangelism is, it's just a transliterated word. We don't really translate it well into English, but just the Greek word evangelion, and it just means, it means the gospel. You often see it translated in the Bible, gospel, and it just means good news. You gotta take serious our job of spreading the good news of Christ. Isaiah 52, seven says it this way, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That's the reality of the call that we have to go proclaim the good news to all nations, just as Epaphras did. See, Paul continues explaining that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 16. You can flip to that if you have your Bible with you. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, through you and I, through those who are in Christ, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him in some places. 
That's not what that says, is it? It says everywhere. Spreads among them the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. Pay attention to this. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Let's stop right there. We're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about spreading the gospel. I'm the pastor that oversees evangelism here at our church, and I often hear this over and over again. I share the gospel with someone, and they didn't get saved. What did I do wrong? And I say, well, did you share the true gospel, the gospel of repentance and faith? Well, yes. Did you call them to repentance? Yes. You didn't do anything wrong. The reality of our job of being all in as Christians is we are the aroma of Christ to God among who? People who are being saved and people who are perishing. It is just as much worship and obedience to God to share the gospel with someone who will never repent, sharing the gospel with someone who will never receive Christ, as much as it is as worship for you and I to share gospel to the people who will repent and who will trust in Christ. It's not a failure when we share the gospel with people who don't respond. It's us being the aroma of Christ to God. It's us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him in all places, and that's worship. Everyone ought to know the good news of the gospel. Not everyone's going to respond to it, but it's us being the kingdom of priests to God, spreading the aroma of Christ to all nations, knowing full well that not everyone's going to respond to it, but knowing it doesn't matter because for us to be all in means we're going to share the gospel to everyone. Why? Because we're the aroma of Christ. Verse 16, to one we're a fragrance from death to death, and to the other we're a fragrance from life to life. The reality is, is when we share the gospel, people know the truth. People hear the truth, and whether they decide to respond to it or not, that's between the Holy Spirit and them. But for us, we have a job. And to be all in doing our job, we've got to be the fragrance of Christ everywhere. Colossians 4, 12 and 13, we learn a little bit more about Epaphras and his job and him being all in. It says in verse 12, chapter 4, that Epaphras, he's one of you. He's one of you. We didn't ship him in. He's not someone that we brought in to do this special work. He's one of you guys. He's just one of you guys who took serious the job of gospel advancement. He's one of the guys who's all in for the work of the gospel. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, and he greets you. He's not there with you right now. He's with me, but he wants you to know something, that he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paphos isn't even with him right now. He's with Paul, but he still wants him to know, hey, listen, I'm struggling for you. I'm praying for you. I want you to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, Paul says, For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you. This is the reality of our personal commitment, is that we are hard workers for the advancement of the gospel, that through us, through the fruit that God bears through us, that people would come to know God, that people would be growing in the knowledge of God so they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. But it takes us being all in and ready, and equipped, and prepared to do the work that God has for us. Kayla, my wife, and I are moving to Texas in just a couple of weeks. Did you know that? We're going to go plant a church, a Compass Bible Church. Isn't that exciting? We don't like to pack heavy. We like to pack light. And so in the process of packing light, we've been selling a lot of things and making some hard decisions and one of our hard decisions is, is we had to rehome our pet fish named Terry. <laughs> Terry was a great fish. But we realized that the 24-hour trip is not the kind of trip a, a fish can take. And so we put him up for sale. I mean, rehoming. <laughs> 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 and 
And a fella came to our house to pick him up just this past week. And this past week, I was really busy. Obviously, we had a, uh, I'm preaching uh, three times this weekend. I've got a core team meeting right after this. And in the morning, we're flying to Texas to go down there and share the gospel and tell other people we're coming to town. And so, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't all in this week when it comes to uh, letting the Holy Spirit guide my direction in evangelism. So this guy comes and he's picking up our fish, and he has given all the signs of somebody who wants to hear the gospel. He's asking questions. He knows I'm a pastor. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wish we could just get Terry to him and I can get back to work. But I realized as he kept asking questions, the conviction of the Holy Spirit came into my life, and I said, far be it from me that I would, in my hurry, and me being hurried, and me trying to get back to, to the work of the gospel at work, to miss the work of the gospel right in front of me. And so as I had Terry in my hands, my fish, and there was a man in front of me, I just was reminded in the scripture that I was called to be a fisher of men. And I started sharing the gospel with this guy. And he responded at the end of it and said, that's the most clear answer and response I've ever heard about the gospel of Christ. Now, mind you, he didn't repent. He didn't respond. But the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ was everywhere in that conversation. And he left there knowing and understanding the knowledge of God. Now, the point of this is twofold. is one that we need to embrace our personal evangelistic responsibility. And sometimes it looks different. Me as a pastor, yes, it's in my, my office, it's in counseling, it's preparing sermons, but it's also selling your fish on Craigslist. <laughs> but it's also important for us to understand something that Paul is trying to get the Colossians to understand, and it's this, that the Colossian church was dealing with a lot of pressures from the outside. You had a lot of polytheistic religions out there, you had a, a group of, of Jewish exiles that lived there, you had... Uh, you had a lot of people from the Roman religions. And so in Colossae, there were a lot of pressures. There were a lot of people who had uh, human traditions and human philosophies, really smart people saying a lot of smartish kind of things. And he says, you need to be careful. Just like this fellow, when I was sharing the gospel with him, it was real quick. I learned that he knew a lot of pop psychology. He knew a lot of philosophy and a lot of plausible arguments that kept him from responding properly to the gospel that was presented. And for us, we need to understand that that's a real issue that we even have today in our own church, that we have culture pressing in on either side. We have other religions and cults that try to push us in and box us in as Christians. And we got to realize something, and it's a theme of Colossians that Paul wants people to understand. He actually writes it in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. He's like, you're going to be pushed. You're going to be pushed from both sides. And this is what you need to know, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. This is a theme of Colossians. You can circle this if you I'm going to go back later and say, you know what, what, is he, what does he really want to happen here in Colossae and, and for us? It says, therefore, in verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. You see, he's saying you're going to be pushed one way and the other. People are going to be coming with you with plausible arguments. People are going to be coming to you with philosophy and human traditions. And listen, if you're not ready, if you're not firm and rooted and established in your faith, you're going to fall. You're going to fall to the wayside, and you, you may even fall away from the faith. You need to understand that if we're going to take serious our job of sharing the gospel, if we're going to be all in, we need to ourselves to be rooted and built up and established in the faith. We need to know what we believe. And you need help doing it. I'll give you four ways that you can embrace your personal evangelistic responsibility, even today. 
Number one is you need to make sure that your small group keeps you accountable. We love small groups here at Compass. If you're not in a small group, after service, go out to the Connect table and say, hey, I want to be a part of a small group. They'll get you connected. But small groups are important because on the weekends you come here and you're looking up on the stage and you're listening to someone preach you the word, which you ought to. But what's necessary is throughout the week that you spend time living life with other people who are also trying to be all in about the gospel. People who are trying to be all in about making sure that the aroma of Christ is spread as a fragrance to the world. And if you don't have people asking you, hey, when is the last time you shared the gospel? Hey, when is the last time that you spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ in, in your community, in your home? As a matter of fact, many of our homes have people who aren't saved. How, many, how often do you do that? Small groups are a good place for that. And we need to make sure that we have a small group that helps us keep accountable. Number two is you need to capitalize on the places God already has you. Uh, being over evangelism, I often have people say, hey, how can I get involved in the evangelism ministry? And I said, well, are you saved? Yes. Well, welcome to the team. You're on the evangelism team. If you're a part of Compass Bible Church, you're on the evangelism team. You don't have to sign up for a special group. You're part of the special group called Christian, called a disciple. It's all of our job to be on the evangelism team. We need to capitalize on the places God already has you. Of course, our evangelism team goes out to neighborhoods, and we go to different, uh, uh, we go to the spectrum, and we go to these places, we do evangelism. But you know where we can't do evangelism? Inside your home, inside of your gated community, inside of your workplace where, where people just can't go in because they don't work there, inside your schools. Guess who can do evangelism in those places? You. Us those who work there. We need to make sure that we're capitalizing on the places that God already has us when it comes to being all in about the gospel. Because a lot of times we can put off our responsibility to share the gospel with people because we can say there's a team for that at the church. There's a group. If I want to go do it, I'll go out on a Saturday and I'll go do it. But that's not the call that we have. The call that we have is to make disciples of all nations everywhere, wherever we are. And thirdly, and lastly, you need to partner with what your church is already doing. Our church does a really good job of reaching out to our community, a really good job of, of having opportunities and events for you to partner with spreading the gospel throughout our community and throughout our world. Now, I don't know many churches that, that plant churches as well as we do, who go out to the community and reach out to the community as well as we do. And so I want you to not, to not just shrug it off because you may grew up here, you, you've been here for so long, and not realizing the fruit that we bear here at Compass and the opportunities that lie before you to go and be a part of the gospel expansion throughout South Orange County and the world. And so you need to ask, what is the church doing when it comes to spreading the gospel, when it comes to doing outreach in our community? You need to partner with them. The second circle of focus I want you to pay attention to is in verses 3 and 5, and you can label it your corporate responsibility. Corporate, not like your job that you work for Apple, but corporately as a church. Like, this our responsibility. It's your responsibility, and it's my responsibility. And I'll prove it to you. Verses 3 through 5, follow along with me. It says, we, him and Timothy, they're writing this letter, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. You. That's probably not, that's probably not the best translation, because that you is a second person plural. So I'll give it to you in Texan. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for y'all, since we heard of y'all's faith in Christ and of the love that y'all have for all the saints. See, it's, it's, it's corporate. It's a job that we all do together. And Paul spends a lot of time talking about these three things that we call the quintessential triad of Christian living. He's talking about their faith, their love, and their hope. 
And we need to spend some time working on that right now because if that's our corporate responsibility, we need to know what Paul's saying. We need to know what Paul's getting at here when he's talking about our faith, our hope, and the love. Of course, we know when he's talking about faith, obviously the theme of Colossians that we have a rooted and built up, established faith. But he says you also need to, have a, you need to know what your faith is. Like you need to have a firm grasp when these cultures are trying to push you on either side. You need to have a strong grasp when, when the culture is trying to push you to not so much believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Ah, God, didn't, God's, God doesn't have wrath. Jesus didn't die for our sins because God was, was angry. That's not true. We have a lot of beliefs and a lot of human philosophies today pushing that down our throat. It's not the only one. Our whole society is becoming a society that, that is pushing us, trying to push us further away from orthodox belief and, and the concrete foundations that we have in Christ through the gospel. And something we can never shy away from is understanding the gospel that is set forth from us, from Scripture. I think of Isaiah 53.5. You want to talk about having a firm faith. Paul says, since we heard of your faith, I thank God when we pray for you because of your faith. I thank God when I think of you because I know your faith because I've heard of your faith. That kind of faith that understands that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Brought us peace. That's, that's another theme you find in Colossians a couple of times. Firstly, in, in, the, in the very first few verses, Paul says, grace and peace from God the Father. That's funny. Not funny. It's serious. Because when you, when, you, when you really think about it, how do you have peace from God? There's only one way to have peace from God. It's not just a, a little fun, little introduction of saying, hey, peace, peace, and, uh, peace and love to you from God the Father. No, he's saying, peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same truth that we find here in Isaiah 53, that he has brought us peace, and it's with his wounds that we are healed. It's because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that we can even be Christians, that we can even be here abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul says it in another way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know this verse. You go through partners, you know this verse for sure. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't get to God because I'm on a, a scale, and if I do just enough good stuff, outweighs my bad stuff, that I get into heaven. That's not how it works. See, Christ came and died to prove to us that our good works are never going to get us there. It took God himself coming down and doing the job, you hear me, doing the job for us, for us to ever be seen righteous in his sight. And so if Christ came down here and got the job done, how much more important it is for you and I to get the job done when it comes to advancing the gospel, when it comes to spreading the fragrance of the knowledge that Christ got the job done and it's our turn to now go and get the job done when it comes to gospel advancement in our own community. So he's saying you need to be a, have a firm faith because you don't have a firm faith, you're not going to be a gospel advancement kind of person because you're going to be afraid, you're going to be fearful, you're going to be nervous, and you're never going to take this, the real responsibility of being faithful. The second term that, that Paul uses, and he says this, that I thank God for your faith and also for the love that you have for all the saints. I want you to pay attention here because... Our society will take the word love and they will spread it thin as far as they can and as far and wide. When I shared the gospel with this fellow the other day, he's like, I just love. He said something weird. He said, I just see hearts. I don't see anything but hearts. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that you just saw hearts? Uh, 
<laughs> That's what people, they want to spread it thin. Like, what is that? Like, I love, just love, 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 love. But Paul is thanking the, the God for the Colossians for a specific kind of love, for an agape kind of love, a, a God kind of love. Agape love is the affection you have towards Christian because of your love for God. Do you hear me? The affection you have towards Christians because of your love for God. It's, it's, a, it's a love that only comes from God. To prove that, in verse 8, Paul says that, that Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So you get that. Don't, don't pass that too quickly. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Not your own selfish love, not the own love that you can conjure up on your own that you may have for your girlfriend or your boyfriend. No, this is a love that you can only have in the Spirit. It's a love that you can only have if you are in Christ, abounding in the work of God. So we can't, we can't escape the reality of what Paul's really saying here. I thank God for your faith and for the love that you have for all the saints. I could spend all day on this, and you'd probably want me to, right? But listen, you've got to have a love for the saints. You've got to have a love for the church. And I'm not talking about superficial, surface-level love. I'm talking about do you love the saints? Do you love your church? And not the building. I know it's a pretty building. I'm not talking about loving this building. I'm like, do you love the people that are sitting next to you? When you look around this room, do you love them? Do you look over there at them like, like Paul says about Epaphras, and he said, man, that's my beloved fellow servant over there. Like, I love that fellow servant. So we got to understand that, that we are called to love the church, that we have love for all the saints, and it's a self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of love. You know how self-giving and how self-sacrificial is the kind of love that we're called to give. You find it in 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. You want to know what love is? I can tell you a lot of things that love ain't, but I'll tell you what love is. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent self-giving, self-sacrificial, sent self-giving love, agape love, selfless love, self-sacrificial love. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God was satisfied on our behalf in Christ being sent for us. That's self-giving. That's agape love. And if your love for the church, if your love for one another doesn't look like that, if it doesn't look self-sacrificial and self-giving, it's not agape love. And Paul thanks the Colossians, or thanks God for the Colossians because that's exactly the kind of love that they represent in their church. And it's a call that you and I have at Compass to have a self-sacrificial and self-giving love for the church and for one another. You need to ask yourself, when is the last time that I did something self-sacrificial in my love for the saints because of my love for God? See, the love of God should motivate you and compel you to love your church well. Thirdly and lastly, to just wrap up that triad of Christian living that we find in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and 1 Corinthians 13.13, you know it, faith, hope, and love. Some of you have it on, in your house somewhere, you know, written just perfectly, bought it from Hobby Lobby. All right. <laughs> But it's the hope. It's the factor of hope. It's a firm hope in the destiny of humanity because of Christ. Like we have this expectation of hope. And this is what I want you to pay attention to in verse 4. Paul says, I thank God for you since I heard of your faith and in the love that you have for all the saints. Now listen to this, comma, because. You can have a firm faith. You can love the saints. You don't have to have self-care and self-love. We're not about self-care and self-love. Why? because I have a hope in the future, that I'm not here trying to just make this the best life. I'm not trying to live my best life now. I'm not trying to make everything perfect here because I have a hope that there's something more in the future. So I can have faith. Today I can have a firm, steady faith when culture is rocking me back and forth. 
I can love the saints and give of myself and be self-giving and self-sacrificial because I'm not trying to store up my treasures here on earth where moth and dust destroy, where robbers come in and steal. No, 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 I have a hope. That's what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 drives home, that we have a hope. We can have a firm faith and we can have a self-giving, self-sacrificial love because of the hope that we have And here's what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. He's saying those things on the earth, that's not what we're focusing on. We have a hope in what we cannot see. And so we're okay with these things that we have seen to not be our focus. I'm not going to focus on these these things that are transient. I'm going to focus on the things that are eternal, the things that are permanent. And he says, here's why. Because you have died. If I die to these things, I die to what I can see so that I can live for what I can't see, the hope of eternity. And that's what he says. For you have died. You've died. You're gone. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Well, that's great because where is God? Seated at, or where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of God. So my life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's a hope that the world has no idea of. It's a hope the world does not see because what they see is here, is transient, it's temporal. They know that. That's why everyone in our world tries so hard to make this the best life, to try to make sure they can live as long as they can, as healthy as they can, as well as they can. But that's not the kind of hope that we're called to have as Christians. It's the kind of hope to know when Christ appears, which we know he will appear. That's our hope. It's our our eager expectation, not just a, a flimsy kind of flippant hope. It's the reality that we know that Christ resurrected and he's eternally at the right hand of the Father and he's going to come back and we have a hope. So I can have a firm faith. I can be a self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of guy because I have a hope that when Christ appears, I will also appear with him in glory. You will also appear with him in glory. That's what the church has to do. We have to live out that gospel, that good news, the good news of the firm faith that Christ did what he said he did. That we can have a, a, a love, a self-giving, self-sacrificial love, and a hope. And that's our corporate job. Remember, I told you, that's the second circle, corporate. That's what we have to do. And in order for us to be living that, we need to affirm that. And that's the point number two on your outline, is you need to affirm gospel-centeredness. There's probably a lot of better words you can use than centeredness, but I couldn't think of one. But centeredness, what, did that, what does that mean? That means you need to affirm Christians who are getting the job done. You need to affirm Christians who are taking serious the job of having a firm faith and self-sacrificially, self-giving themselves to loving the saints and having a firm hope in eternity and our destiny. The Bible is full of, of, of accounts and stories of people affirming other Christians for their faith. Hebrews chapter 11, I mean, it's just a whole 30 verses. You'll be reading all of those in your, uh, in your application questions this week. So drink some water and read that slope. But there's a lot of other scriptures that, that, that they point out. Here's are Christians who are doing a really good job, and they affirm them. And I want you to understand the job that we have as Christians to, to yes, take our evangelistic responsibilities seriously, but we also need to affirm others who are. We need to affirm Christ-centeredness. I'll give you just one example in scripture, 3 John 3. 3 John 3 says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. 
Here's the reality. We have Christians who are going to John and saying, listen, these people are walking in the truth. You should see them. You should just see them. Their, their faith is strong. Their love for one another is just vibrant. And they have this strong hope in the future, the culmination of redemptive history, that Christ is going to return and we're going to dwell with him. It's the kind of life that they live. And he affirms it. He's saying, I rejoice greatly. Paul's saying, I'm rejoicing greatly that that's the kind of life that they're living. You can find it throughout everywhere. Paul does it in Philippians. We do it throughout all of Scripture. That's what we do is we talk about people who are living out their faith well, and we just we give them affirmation. And I think we, you and I, in our church, we need to be affirming people who are living that out. You see somebody who's loving the church well. You see someone who has a firm faith, somebody who's really looking at the hope of eternity and looking at the hope of the future that we have in Christ. You need to affirm those people. There's a couple of ways you can do that. If you want to encourage people who are gospel-centered, you need to go and do that now. You need to, before you even leave, like after service, just go look at somebody that you know who's living out these, these, uh, these core commitments of Christianity and say, hey, listen, I just want to let you know that I thank God when I pray for you. I thank God when I pray for you because you have a firm faith, because you compel me, you encourage me to live out my faith better, and I want to be around you more because that's the kind of life you live. You're the kind of person like Epaphras that I want to follow that kind of leadership. I want to follow that kind of, I want to imitate that kind of life. Like Paul and John, you need to share testimonies of gospel-centeredness. You hear that? You need to share testimonies of that, just like we, we find here in Scripture. When somebody is living out their faith, they're sharing the gospel, you know, when, when they're leading their family well, when they have a firm grasp on the faith that we have, you need to share stories of that. Just like I was able to share a story of sharing the gospel with a guy that I met this past week. That needs to be a regular occurrence in our church where we're around and say, hey, you know what happened last week? I saw this person over there, and, man, they were just living it out. Like, I've never seen anyone love like that person just loved. Right? That's the kind of life and the kind of reality that we need to have when it comes to sharing testimonies. We need to be a people who are sharing testimonies, just like they did in Scripture. Philemon 4 and 5. I'm not going to read all these, but it's like, I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love. Well, how did he hear? He heard because somebody went and told them. As Christians, we got to make sure that we're people sharing the testimonies of the love and the faith and the hope that you see in this church. No one's going to know if you don't go tell them. And even in our church, we need people affirming gospel centeredness so we can compel and encourage everyone in here to live that kind of faith and live that kind of life. There's a lot more I can say about that. We'll move on to the, the third circle of focus that Paul makes evident, and it's in verse 6. So you have your personal circle, you have your corporate circle, right? the, the, the church, y'all, and you have a third that we're called the universal church. Not the universalist church, not that everybody everywhere is going to heaven no matter what. No, the universal church. The, the church is all of those who are in Christ, all of those who are saved throughout the world is, is this third circle. We need to understand something about the, the reason, that, another reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians was because there were all these local religions and all these household gods that people ascribed to. And you had this pressure over here from the Jewish circle of saying, well, if you say you follow the Jewish Messiah, then it looks like you need to be doing a lot of Jewish festivals and a lot of Jewish rituals, or you're not really a, a Christian. And you have these people over here who believe in all these Roman gods and all these Roman beliefs, and they're saying, well, you know what, this is our town god, and I tell you, when, when there's an earthquake and you don't pray to this God to make it stop, everyone in town is going to be mad at you because you're not helping us stop the earthquake. You see what I'm saying here? Okay. There's all of these pressures that they have throughout the whole city. And Paul's writing this letter and, and helping them understand something 
There may be some local gods around there. There may be some regional gods there in the Lycus Valley, but Jesus is no regional god here. And Paul is driving this home. He's saying, the gospel is multiplied through the whole world. Verse 6, listen to this. The gospel which has come to you, sure it's here. The gospel is here. It's in South Orange County. It was in Colossae. It was in Laodicea. It was in Heropolis. It was throughout the Lycus Valley. It was there. People they knew, knew the gospel. People they could see knew the gospel. But he's saying, this gospel has come to you as indeed it in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Here's the reality. Paul's saying, listen, yes, it's here. Jesus is here, but he's also there. Jesus is here, but the gospel is all over the world. And they were fighting the, the temptations and the pressures of these local cults and these local sects. And Paul is looking at them and saying, Christianity is not a local cult. Jesus is not a local God. And he proves that by going into one of the greatest hymns of, of, of Christ that we see in Scripture when he's proving that Jesus isn't a local God. Jesus is way bigger than the God of earthquakes over there and the God of rain or drought over there. This is, this is Jesus, the Jesus of Colossians 1, verses 15 through 22. And you know where I'm going here. Follow along. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. You have some images of these local gods in your house, on your mantle. You stick them up there. You pray to them every once in a while. But that, that's not Jesus. No, Jesus is the image. You want to talk about an image? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. You may have some gods that you think created the dirt and created the bugs, but this is the God who through him all things were created. This is no local God. You can't, you can't cap him off and put him in a box here in the Lycus Valley. This is a much bigger God than anything you, you trust in and you believe in. Because all things were created for him, through him, on heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You want, a, you want a God to pray to when the earthquakes? You want a God to pray to when it floods? You want a, you want a God to pray to when the armies come and encamp against you and, and surround you? You want a God to pray to? It's Jesus, an eternal God. A commentator says that Colossians is all about the cosmic Christ, the God of all creation, not the local God the God of all. And the beautiful thing in verse 18 is he's the God of all, but he's also the God of the church. He's also our God. He's a, he's a personal God. He's an eternal, he's a transcendent God. He's a God over all creation, but he's also our God. And the beautiful thing is he's, he's more than just here in South Orange County, but the good thing is, is he's still here in South Orange County. That's the, re, that's the real understanding and the truth that we have in Christ is he's a big God. He's an eternal God, but he's a God that's here. But if we're going to be good at not succumbing to the pressures to fall away of our local cults that we even have here, or local traditions, or all the philosophies of our own world, we need to understand the global impact of the gospel. And that's point number three. You need to recognize the global impact of the gospel. And that's what Paul is showing to the Colossians, saying, listen, I know that people are coming to you and they're sharing with you these other cults. And they're saying, sure, Jesus will throw them up on the mantle with the other ones. You know, he's great. He's great. We love him. We love these people too. And he's saying, you're going to have the pressure to do that. You're going to have the pressure to say, you know, Jesus and money, that's fine. You know, Jesus and relationship, that's fine. Jesus and my nice new car, you can just put, they're kind of right there. They're kind of the same. Jesus and my kids, Jesus and my spouse. You can put them all right there, and you can focus on them all equally. And Paul's saying, 
you have to have a rooted faith. You have to have an established faith, a faith where you say nothing sits on the throne of my life other than the God who enthrones the universe. That's the reality, and that's just a truth. That's the foundational truth that we have as Christians, that we need to understand that this isn't a local issue. This is a global issue. This is an eternal issue. And Paul's saying you need to recognize the global impact of the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1.23, he's talking about the gospel. He said, the gospel that you heard here has also been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's just reaffirming the reality. Listen, your Christianity isn't a Western religion. It's not an American religion. It's not a white guy religion. This is a religion that started in the Middle East and has gone throughout the whole world. I'm going to talk about where it really started. It started before the foundations of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where your beliefs originated. And we got to believe that. We got to understand that. We got to rest upon the foundation that it was in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. That's where our faith began. It didn't just begin in Israel. It didn't just begin here when we founded America. It's been here. It's been around. It's nothing new. Romans 10, 18, back to the Roman church, Paul says, but I ask you a question. Have they not heard? Have they not heard the gospel? I mean, does, does anybody really have an excuse of not hearing the gospel? He says, indeed, they have heard the gospel. He says, because their voice has gone into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The gospel has gone out, and the gospel is going out, and that's why we focus on embracing our own personal evangelistic responsibility, because we are, like all the generations before us, are just continuing that cycle and that obedience of going out and spreading the aroma of Christ. And so, yes, as the voices have gone out into all the world, so they are doing now. And so we're not just some some static representation of the church. No, we're dynamic. We're going out. The, the gospel is going out just like it has since Christ was here, and it will be going out until Christ returns. And so we get to be a part of that. We don't have to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. You realize that, right? That kind of responsibility, that kind of privilege that we have as Christians to get to be part of the global impact of the gospel. You want to know just how global the gospel is. You can just flip to Revelation 7, 9. We're going to spend the, the rest of this time in a couple of verses in Revelation. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Where were they from? Well, they were from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and languages, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You want to know just how global your faith is? You want to know how eternal your faith is? That it don't matter where you're from, who you are, what language you speak, or what tribe and corner of the world that you reside in, there is going to be representation from your tribe, from your nation, from your language and your tongue before the throne of God, forever worshiping the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you and I will be there too. And you and I are responsible for making sure that there's people in the world understanding and knowing the fragrance of Christ and that some of those who have been called to salvation, who have been appointed to salvation, will hear it because we were obedient to be all about it. That's how global the gospel is. Everybody, everybody will know whether here or there. Everyone's going to know. But it's our job to recognize the global impact of the gospel and be a part of global gospel advancement everywhere. How are you going to do that? Again, you're part of a great church who does this really well. 
the first thing you need to do is you need to recognize it. You need to be aware of it. You know, we have a library right out those doors, and they're open right after this. You do not know that. They, their doors are open, and they are expecting you. And you can go to that library, and you can go to the biography section, and you can find stories and books of individuals and groups and churches who have taken up the mantle of, of gospel advancement throughout the world. You need to go read these stories. Kind of like we want to affirm gospel-centeredness, we also need to go read up on people who have been gospel-centered in the global advancement of the faith. Go there. Read some biographies. Read stories of people who have taken seriously their evangelistic responsibility to all the nations. Secondly, you need to give and participate in global missions through the church, this church. The great thing about Compass is we, have a, we actually have a missions uh, ministry here. Go to compasschurch.org missions. Scroll down a little bit. You'll find our partnerships globally. See, we, we're here. We plant churches around the country, but we have partnerships around the whole world we partner with people who are doing good global gospel advancement. And you need to do is you need to go look at them. You need to go read up on them. You need to get to know what they're doing. You need to be praying for them. And you need to, you need to be asking yourself, how can I partner with them as well to advance the gospel across the world? Thirdly, Compass likes going on trips. Haven't been going on many trips this past year, but we'll be going on more after this year. I know for a fact that we have a, a trip going to Europe, a Reformation trip coming up soon. We have a trip coming to Israel soon. And why am I pointing these out? Not because I just think you all need to go on vacation because you've been working so hard, uh, but because we're going to be sharing real stories of how the, the gospel has advanced through the Middle East, throughout Europe, throughout all of the world, through the faithfulness of people in churches. And you want to get real serious about recognizing the global impact of the gospel? Go to places where the gospel has impacted countries and nations and leaders. I encourage you, Go. Sign up. When you, see, when you see those forms pop up, go fill out. Commit to going on a trip with Compass so you can see how the gospel has advanced through the whole world. <clears throat> one of the quotes, one of my favorite quotes, it's not biblical, just one of my practical quotes that I always I try to keep near and dear to my heart. And my parents didn't even teach it to me. I think I heard it somewhere, and I just kept it in my heart ever since. Uh, is a quote that it says, it's great to learn from experience, but it's better to learn from the experiences of others. That's like, that's how I build my life on that. Like, I think I've, I've got to where I am because I didn't make a lot of the stupid mistakes that I watched other people make. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. It's pretty biblical. They may, not, they may not say that in the Bible, but that's a biblical principle. Let's, let's not live like people who make bad mistakes. Let's learn from that. The Bible is going give, to give us really, really, really good examples and comparisons of people who made mistakes that we ought not to imitate. See, the great thing about the book of Colossians is, as Paul's saying here, the Colossian church, imitate those people. There's a neighbor of Colossae just to the west in the Lycus Valley, a little, not a little town, a big town, and the church called Laodicea. And this church in Laodicea is a church that we would say was not getting the job done. Colossians, they were getting the job done. Paul was thanking God for them, for their faith and their hope and their love. But we get to Revelation chapter 3. Go ahead and flip there. Revelation chapter 3. We see a church who isn't being thanked for. We see a church getting rebuked. Ironically, the same, I mean, the church was planted by Epaphras. You realize, you remember that. This church at one point, because we know later on in the letter to Colossae, Paul says, you need to go read this letter to Laodicea as well. So we have to realize at some point in time, Laodicea was doing pretty good. But by the time we get to Revelation, we don't see that so much. Follow along with me. I'll be in Revelation 3. I'll just read verse 15 through 17, and then we'll skip down. Uh, verse 15 says, I know your works, the church in Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. 
I would that you were rather cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That English word spit, that's, that is a pretty just, that's a not, it's not a great word for the Greek word there. What he's saying is I'm going to throw you up out of my mouth. He's saying you are intolerable to me. There is nothing you guys are doing that even remotely represents the faith and the hope and the love that you are called to have when you trust in Christ and repent of your sins. That's not the kind of church you guys are being over there. And he's saying, I want to throw you up out of my mouth. And here's why. Because you say you're rich. You say you've prospered. You say you don't need anything. He's like, that's not the kind of gospel that we proclaim. We proclaim a gospel that you have nothing outside of Christ. And that's, that's actually what ends up happening here. We go a little further. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's like, this is what you think you are. You think you got it all. You think you have all your needs met because you live in this great town, Zelthorns County. You live in this great place, and you have everything you ever needed, but you don't realize just how poor, blind, and naked you really are. He's talking to a church here. And we need to, we need to take this to heart. We need to take this serious. Because in verse 18... Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I love this because he's calling out the sin. He's calling out the sin, and then he gives some direction. Because remember, this is a church. Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't saying, yeah, your church, you're going to go burn in hell. No, he's, this is a church. The church will be disciplined. The church will be rebuked when it's not doing its job. But listen to verse 18. I counsel you. Here's what you need to do now. You need to buy from me gold refined by fire. You've been, trying to, you've been buying all these goods from the city You've been, you've been saying that you are all content and sufficient in yourself. You need to get, no, you need to come buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. You want to be rich? You need to follow me. Not rich in this world, of course, in the hope of the future, right? That's what we talked about. And you, want, you need to buy white garments from me so that you may, be clo- you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And let's skip to verse 19. He's saying, listen, you don't realize how poor, blind, and naked you are and I'm rebuking you in that. I'm disciplining you in that. And verse 19 says, those whom I love, I, repro- I reprove and I discipline. It's the beauty of the gospel is even when we aren't doing our job, Christ comes and says, listen, you're not doing your job. And I'm going to give you some counsel here. You can just turn, just repent. That's what it says. You need to be zealous and repent. If you aren't embracing your personal evangelistic responsibility, like if you aren't affirming gospel-centeredness in your church, and you aren't recognizing the global impact of the gospel, if you're so tied up in your little area of South Orange County or Hill Country of Texas, if you're so worried about the perfect house you're going to buy, this is for my church planet people, the perfect house you're going to buy, the job that you're going to get, the schools that you're going to attend your, send your kids to, and you just you overlook our evangelistic responsibility, you're overlooking the global impact of the gospel because you're so just right there in your own world. Like You're staring at a tree and you don't realize the global force we have of gospel advancement and gospel responsibility. You need to be zealous and repent. And here's the promise that we have if we take the counsel of Christ to repent from that, to repent from this couch Christianity. This, oh, after church, I'm going to go home, I'm going to eat some lunch, I'm going to take a nap, and then I'll, I'll go and hear Pastor Mike next week say, this, say something else. No, no, no. You need to be zealous and repent. And here's the promise. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is great. Repent. Turn away from that, from that, that armchair Christianity and be zealous and repent. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my voice and they obey me, I'm going to open the door and I'm going to come in. I'm going to eat with him and then he will dine with me also. The one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, an ear let him hear. That if, if these aren't things you've been focusing on, 
our three points. If you aren't focusing on those things, be zealous and repent. This is a great moment that, that Christ could be disciplining you and rebuking you to say, listen, let's get the big picture in mind here this morning. Let's find out what the big picture is, and let's be all about it. Let's be all about doing the work of the gospel. <clears throat> Growing up, I, I didn't love Westerns because they were in black and white, and I didn't like black and white TV. But they always had a really good message. About halfway through, you get to the climax of the movie, and you always have this cowboy just ch -ch 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 shooting, saving the day, saving the damsel in distress. And um, you, know, you get to the end of the movie, and, and the world is saved, the bank is saved, the gal's doing just fantastic. And, and they're sitting there, and at the end of the movie, the, the gal comes up and says, says, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for saving me, for doing all of this stuff. Thank you so much. And what does the cowboy always say at the end? He says, no thanks necessary, ma'am. I'm just doing my job. You see, that's the same sentence that we ought to be saying as, as Christians, as people who have a faith and a hope and a love for Christ, and we've been saved, that when we do all that we've been here to do, that we just say, no thanks necessary. I'm just doing my job. I mean, this is just my job. I'm, not, I'm doing nothing special here. I'm not patting myself on the back because, you know, Compass is planting churches all around the world, and, or I'm moving to Texas, or I moved to Treasure Valley. At the end of the day, when we really look at this and we just say, I'm just doing my job. That's what Jesus says in Luke 17, 10. It says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So let's live out of faith this morning where we can stand before God as a worker approved. That we can stand and we can look at people and we can look at our community and our church and say, we're just out here doing our job. Let's do our job together. Stand with me as we, we pray and in the morning. God, what we love is your word that, that, that directs us and teaches us and confirms in us how we ought to be living our lives and how we ought to partner with one another to advance the gospel, to advance the great commission that you left us here to do. God, thank you for a church that just loves their people. Thank you so much, God, that, that you have saved us, that you have brought us out of darkness into light to take on the mantle of gospel advancement. I do pray, God, that those here who are doing that, that they continue abounding in it even more and more, and that those who aren't, that they would, like we read in Revelation 3, they'd be zealous and repent because you are sitting there at the door and ready to utilize anyone who is ready to get the job done. Uh, we thank you. God, we lift all this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen.